If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. My goodness, you need a program to follow all of the committees and inquiries and scandal and whatever is going on uh, with the federal government. And the latest is the Arrive Can app, which, of course, uh, ended up costing us about $60 million. And nobody seems to know where the money went, according to the attorney general, or even if that's how much was spent, because the records were so poor. And, and, you know, uh, for me, what stands out most about this situation is not so much the Arrive Can app, because that's just an example, another example of, but more so what the auditor general said, and just a basic lack of of, uh, of basic accounting skills and, and management and such. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so, it, cause that seems to be the common denominator in all of this. And now, of course, getting back to, uh, the Arrive Can, CG Strategies owners are, are to testify on dates to be determined at the committee. Uh, what do we hope to learn? Haven't they already? Let's bring in Michael Barrett, Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government is here now. Michael, thank you for the time hope you're well hey thanks for having me on i'm doing great how are you good thanks so much michael for joining us uh what's different here because i understand that these people have already testified they're coming back again what's different here well now we have an auditor general's report into justin trudeau's 60 million dollar arrive scam and it's raised all kinds of questions not only about the management or mismanagement of uh of the execution on on this um failed app uh, but also about some of the contractors and and revised figures. When we had these individuals from GC Strategies testify before, um, you know, I questioned them myself and questioned them about a figure of $11 million. That's what um, was purported to be the amount that they were contracted for. Uh, we've since learned it's uh, closer to $20 million. We've also learned from the Auditor General that um, a contract for uh, for the public service procurement was written by these contractors who were then able to be the only ones who uh, to to qualify for the contract that's extremely extremely rare and and just last week the um the uh, uh, outlet la presse in out of quebec reported that this firm gc strategies um starting 3 weeks after justin trudeau was elected have received $258 million, a quarter billion dollars in business from the federal government. Um, this is for a two-person shop operating out of a, out of a suburban mm. Ottawa home. That's, uh, that's beyond belief. And the last thing I'd just say quickly is that um, they've been summoned to appear before a parliamentary committee twice. They've, now t- they've twice refused. That's why we're taking extraordinary measures, because um, when uh, tens of millions of taxpayer dollars uh, are are at at stake. Um, y- you can't refuse to appear before a parliamentary committee to answer questions. Um, where wh- when will this all happen? Do we know? Is there a timeline here? Um, and what sort of questions are you going to be asking? Well, this is a uh, they've got three weeks to arrange to appear before the committee, or as the motion uh, requires, the, a warrant would be issued and the sergeant at arms would arrest them and bring them for questioning at the House of Commons, um, a rarely used power of Canada's parliament, but, but um, you know, a, a, an important one in situations like these. And uh, the questions r- relate to those very issues that the Auditor General raised. Um, how, how is it that this preferential access uh, was gained? Um, and, uh, and, and why is it that um, previous testimony to the committee isn't consistent with uh, what Canada's Auditor General has revealed in her report. So, um, you know, the the with every day and every new independent officer of Parliament who um, releases uh, reports from their investigations, like the procurement ombudsman has, like the Auditor General has, we've now asked the Public Sector Integrity Commissioner to begin an investigation. And we know that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are investigating some of the contractors who worked on Justin Trudeau's arrive scam. Um, it, it, this is all about accountability and answers for Canadians, and uh, that's what we are in um, in dogged pursuit of, because uh, you know there, there's no extra money in people's bank accounts, um, you know, at, at the end of the month, and there shouldn't be uh, extra uh, millions or tens of millions um, sloshing around Ottawa that finds its way into insiders' pockets. Um, people work hard, uh, they pay their taxes, they expect mm-hmm. that there's good stewardship, and, and that's what we're that's what we're going to ensure.
Why would they not testify, uh, Michael? At the end of the day, it's the government's mistake. Is it not? Is it theirs, or is there a, a, a possibility they may have to repay something? Well, this week when we had uh, um, senior officials from Justin Trudeau's government uh, testifying at committee, I asked that very question about a re- the remedy of um, of recovering funds from from contractors who are found to have. Um, conducted uh, or, or uh, um, carried out, uh, you know, uh, these functions inappropriately. And we know from the Auditor General, we know from previous testimony uh, from some of the witnesses that um, forged uh, credentials or, or falsified resumes were used to um, to win bids. Um, and when we're talking about millions of dollars, it, th- this is the exact kind of opportunity or the exact instance where um, those funds should be recovered. Those are ill-gotten gains, and um, we, need to, we need to get that money back. And it, because there has to be a clear message that um, you, can't, um, you can't abuse uh, you know, taxpayer dollars in that way. Uh, civil servants, uh, the two that were let go, are, they're saying that they're scapegoats. Is the, are these uh, owners scapegoats as well? Uh, you know, we're going to let... Um, we're going to let all of the investigations unfold, but uh, you know the 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 innocence of the individuals who have been involved or the level of their culpability, um, whether it's on a moral, uh, legal, um, ethical um, uh, uh, spectrum, is in some cases going to be for Canadians to judge. And and there are individual bodies who will make um, who will who will make that determination. Um, we're looking for the Public Service Integrity Commissioner to make it about public service employees. Uh, we're looking for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to make that determination about contractors and employees from a criminal perspective. And from a political perspective, um, Canadians are going to have to make a choice about um, Justin Trudeau's um, stewardship of, of Canadian tax dollars and, and this app that costs $60 million and um, seems to have been rife with uh, you know, mismanagement and corruption. And so there, there's there's different levels of accountability that need to be met. Mm. But the government seems seems very keen to try and avoid uh, the watchful eye. And, and that's why they voted against having the auditor general do that, um, do that audit. We were we were successful as conservatives in getting it passed. And they, they tried to, uh, you know, talk out or have a talk a talkathon or filibuster this week to avoid, um, you know, the, the remedies that we've taken uh, to summon these uh, these principles from GC strategies, hmm. uh, but we were able to get that done as well. We're, it's it's all about accountability. Michael Barrett with us, Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government, uh, in the ongoing committee in regard to the Arrive Can, and of course, sixty million dollars. Uh, Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Yep. Have a great weekend. We've talked an awful lot about car theft because there's so many dang cars being stolen. Uh, and, and, and it's virtually uh, an issue not only in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, but right the way across the province, right the way across the country. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to come up with different ways. How do we do this? What do we do? And this week we heard that BlackBerry is making moves to become Perhaps a company for designing the operating systems for cars. Is that the way to go about doing this? Will that help the car theft uh, issue? Or is that just another, um, I guess, opportunity for BlackBerry? And good for them. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist in here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. So great to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm standing here with my key in my hand from my old car. I think it was, I don't know what year this was. (laughs) Is this the answer? Is this the answer, getting uh, IT companies involved uh, involved in this or maybe on the same planet? It could very well be, because if you look at a, lot, at a lot of the technology in today's cars, there's no question that they are essentially rolling computers, rolling smartphones. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I look at my car, it's, I, I can't drive my car if I don't plug my phone in and all of the services then run off of my device. No phone, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, but the problem is, is that it isn't very efficient. It's the average car has dozens, if not more, uh, separate operating systems, separate platforms, different pieces of 
of a software technology talking to each other, trying to kind of work in concert with each other. And that, of course, uh, makes for security concerns because it's fairly easy where one system overlaps onto another. Uh, th that's where weaknesses can occur. That's where cyber criminals would like to focus their efforts. Um, and, and that's where they can kind of weasel their way in and you know find a, a, a relatively easy way to steal your car using technology. So, you know, you know BlackBerry sort of stepping forward and saying we have a lot of expertise in the automotive space, which they do. Uh, their technology is already in 230 million vehicles. They bought a company about a decade and a half ago known as QNX. Uh, they specialize in automotive operating systems. This is what they do. They're known as a world leader in this technology. So BlackBerry stepping forward and saying, hey, you know, we can take all of those different systems and we can kind of be like the central traffic cop. We can integrate them. We can make them work better together, more collaboratively. Uh, which of course means more securely. And of course, BlackBerry is also known as a very strong cybersecurity company. They got a lot of expertise hmm. there. So uh, could it be worse? I don't think so. I I'm, I look at that and I go, you know what? The right people are under that roof. Give them a shot. It can't, you know, looking at the car in my driveway right now, I worry that it's going to be stolen because of the relatively immature technology in it. If Black, BlackBerry wants to have a crack at it, they're the, from where I sit, they're the right company to start that. Uh, my next question was going to be who designs the systems that are currently in the cars, but you sort of partially answered that with, I guess, just a piecemeal of other IT companies that are out there. Is the answer uh, about having a, a uniform system right across the board for all autos? And would that mean that just a one company like a, a BlackBerry is going to run the whole thing? Because that would be a pretty lucrative deal. Oh, it sure would. I mean, I think I, the, when I think about cars and operating systems, I think about smartphones and operating systems. Look to your smartphone and kind of realize that we sort of have that now. There are only two major operating systems. There's Apple's hmm. iOS for its iPhones, and then there's Google's Android for its uh, galaxy of devices uh, from both Google and other manufacturers. Uh, and that leads to some, you know, fairly, you know, not that smartphones are completely invulnerable, but security is relatively decent relative to the features that we have. And so, you know, it, I think it's a fairly workable solution. If you apply the same kind of thinking to cars, you would have, instead of auto manufacturers trying to pull all of the pieces together on their own, you know, pulling mm. solution A from this vendor, solution B from another vendor, and then C and D and E and F all the way down the line, and then trying to integrate them, that hasn't gone all that well, because let's face it, auto manufacturers, that's not what they do best. They're not software companies, even if they hire a lot of software engineers. So why not bring in a, a technology company that knows, that has already done this on other platforms, can do it for the automotive one. And I, so I think it's an intriguing possibility. Um, and there's a bit of, a, of an arms race now. Google and Apple, of course, are pushing for their solutions to be predominant. In other words, they own the integration on our smartphones now, now they want to own it on our cars as well. And BlackBerry is saying, mm, you know what? We want to be part of that conversation, too. Again, Carmi, uh, uh, being the brilliant journalist that you are, you've answered my, ask, my next question. Will the other companies allow this to happen? Or is this going to turn into the big bidding war? And, you know, at the end of the day, the best technology wins. Uh, how do you, yeah, how do you divide I, I think this up? so. I, I don't think I don't see Apple and Google taking this lying down. And certainly when it comes to scale, BlackBerry is, is barely a fraction the size of what it used to be. I think its market yeah. cap is around. Two billion dollars, which is down from over eighty-five billion at its peak. Uh, Apple, of course, uh, is depending on the day, can be worth in the high two trillions, close to three trillion. Um, you know, Google not that far behind. You know, these are the biggest technology companies in the world. So when it comes to scale. I certainly wouldn't bet against Apple and Google winning this one as they won the battle for your smartphone. So BlackBerry's got a problem. It's a small fish in a very big pond. Um, but at the same time, we've seen stranger things happen in technology. And just when you think that you've won one battle, you can be outflanked by a small, agile player. Is that player BlackBerry? Eh. Again, I don't think so, but it'll be interesting to watch them try. And it'll be interesting to see a little bit of competition keep companies like Apple and Google on their toes as they try to take over not just the middle screen on our on our cars, not just infotainment, but the entire dashboard, the instrument paddle, uh, you know, the all of the controls, the safety systems, everything that makes your car tick. Apple and Google want to own that. BlackBerry does too. And it's going to be quite the fight.
Maybe we're going at this completely the wrong way, Carmi. Rather than trying to appleize your car, perhaps we should be figuring out how to put wheels onto our cell phones. Maybe there's a different way we can start from I'm, there, I'm there and go up it's as opposed to there and go down. Right on. Well, Apple and Google kind of had that idea when they introduced CarPlay and Android Auto, respectively. Basically, take your your smartphone, jack it into the car, and then run software off of your phone on a common yeah. screen in your car. So that was their Trojan horse, so to speak, and they're kind of expanding from there. Carmi Levy with his technology analyst and journalist talking about your cars, how we can make them safer or perhaps more like our phones. Carmi is always lots of fun. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. Beyonce is gone country. She's got the hat. She's got the boots. Got everything. Eric Elpers with us, music publicist and commentator, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeehaw. Woo. Let's go. Your thoughts Ride on the country. Right on that horse. Back to number one. Back to number one. <laughs> Your thoughts on the country fight, uh, Beyonce. Amazing. This is so great. Congratulations to country music to move into the 21st century, allowing black people and black women onto their playlist because it's never happened before in music history. There had not been a single black woman that sung a number one uh, song on the, on the Billboard country wow. charts, except for Beyonce this week, which follows, which you and I have talked about in the past, Tracy Chapman becoming the first black woman to write a number one song on the country charts. And that was courtesy of Luke Combs when Luke right. brought her fast car. So this is kind of historic, even though that it's not going to change the world. You're not going to suddenly have a whole bunch of indie artists being on the country music charts to doors that were slammed before. This is Beyonce. She could have done an album of North American frogs and it yeah. would have hit the world music chart. So, you know, take it for what it is. So um, I, I'm looking at it like Beyonce's doing country. That's how I'm seeing it. And and you obviously just sto- uh, you know uh, talked about the historic value of all of this and it, what this means to uh, country music and such, and, and specifically black people. Um, it, it's funny that that's the is that the big issue or is the issue more that what about the song? Do you like it? Is it any good? Yeah, and yeah, most yeah, importantly, is most importantly, is 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 it country? Is that country? Because I remember, like when Shia, Shania Twain came out, I don't know if that's country. <laughs> yeah, it is country, and it's country to an audience that has grown up now with not Garth yeah. Brooks, but they grew up with yeah. Florida Georgia Line and Nelly, and they grew up. Um, in an entirely yeah. new generation of the blend of musical genres yeah. that were usually separated in our generation. But look, country music has never really treated um, black artists well. In fact, you can go back to the 1930s and 40s when a lot of these black artists were, they were mistreated, they were abused, they were broken down by the system of primarily white male power uh, trippers and 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 people who worked and ran radio stations and the Grand Old Opry. In fact, this isn't even Beyonce's first foray into country. Back in 2016 at the Country Music Awards, she appeared on there and then she was treated so badly by the staff that she actually spoke out on social media against her mistreatment. But country music has never been white. That's the weird, ironic thing out of all of this. Country music is black. It's Mexican. It's indigenous. Yeah, it comes yeah, from yeah. Texas along yeah. the border where Beyonce yeah. is from. Yeah. So it's interesting that the people that hold true to the ideals that country music is primarily male and primarily white just need to look around a little bit more and realize that maybe their audience doesn't want to hear this. But country music is never just solely for white people. Well, and, you know, you can go back to the origins of rock and roll in the early 1950s and the combination of country swing and black rhythm and blues. And then obviously there was a time when rock and roll and pop music kind of went one direction and country, you know, sort of went off on its own. But that being said, the roots are the same. Yeah, and and we're starting to see a little bit more of those roots come to light, not just in terms of Beyonce, but Hmm. artists like Mickey Guyton and Britney Spencer and Sasha, who is Canadian, um, kind of creep through those doors of country radio where primarily, um, you know, it takes a superstar 
you know, somebody like Adarius Rucker, who used to be in Hootie and the Blowfish, yeah. he didn't get an open pass either. He had to prove to the country music world that this was not a one album and done like Bon Jovi did a number of years ago, which kind of bombed on country radio, but did well for the rock fans. But country radio is like Quebec in a way. <laughs> Quebec only likes to play French music. Um, yeah. mostly and primarily. So when you're an English artist from the rest of the country and you want to break into the Quebec market, the easiest hmm. thought is, well, I'm going to do a, a French song or I'm going to do a verse in French. And the people in Quebec are like, no, 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 no. Like you, we see what you're doing. We don't like that. I've been on that side of it. So um, I think, I think if Beyonce is going to kind of, you know, solidify herself in this, in this industry, um, she didn't have to do more than a whole album of it, but I think she has to start maybe playing those country music festivals or just realize that I'm Beyonce. I can do whatever I want. Got to write that book, Eric. Come on. All right. I, I've only got a few seconds left. The Beatles uh, documentary, there's there's four of them together. It's four separate. How does this work? Yeah, it looks like that they're going to pick a number of events that happened in the Beatles um, mania life, and it's going to be told by each of the eyes of the four members of the Beatles. So Paul McCartney will have his own episode. Ringo, George, and John will each have their own episode from the exact same happenings um, throughout it's just going to be from their perspective watch what happens with Ringo Starr though because the amount of social media attention that Ringo Starr has gotten because he rarely gets to talk about this stuff because he doesn't really like to talk about it his perspective I think is going to be the interesting one because John and George have talked about it a lot Paul McCartney is still here Ringo is the one that we really still don't know how he felt about all those things going on. Wow. And the drummer gets to sit back and watch it all in play. <laughs> You're right. That's the story to be told. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator. Always fun, Eric. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, man. Thanks for having me. Let's bring in Henry J. Sick, professor of political science, McMaster University. And as always, any every time we bring Henry or guests like him in, there's always way too many topics to try to cram into a small period of time. But Henry, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. All right. First of all, and we know very little details about this. Uh, Jagmeet Singh is coming up on the show after the 430 News uh, to talk more about this. But your thoughts just off the top of your head that, that it appears that there's a deal between the NDP and the Liberals on Pharmacare. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, because I think neither of them want to have an election now. Uh, and I, so I thought they'd find a way to, to get to, uh, you know, basically keep the sessions going. All right. So let's talk about housing. This was interesting because yesterday we were talking uh, on the show that, you know, uh, the premier had made a presentation to the mayor of Toronto because they exceeded their housing starts, which, wow, we were surprised. And there was more on the way. Uh, we heard from Minister Calandra's office at the province, and they said, and uh, in, in Andrea Horvath just released a, a news release on this at three o'clock as we were starting the show, uh, that Hamilton had exceeded its housing starts goal coming in at 120 uh, percent mm. in 20. 2023 and that they're soon going to get a visit like Toronto did and that Brampton is today uh, and uh, and get a piece of the uh, a piece of the pie per se. What are your thoughts on all of that? And what else I found interesting is they sent us a website and they literally have all the municipalities who've met or exceeded or on track to. And it, it's fascinating to see. Yeah, it certainly is. It's a, it's an interesting tactic that uh, the premier has used to get 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 the mayors to do what he wants them to do, which is essentially get the, get more housing built. So yeah, it 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 is working, and uh, hopefully, and and it's working in Hamilton, and so hopefully we'll get a a big chunk of money for that. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at the list right now, and I just ripped it off, and I won't go through that with you again, but I'm looking at, uh, as you mentioned, Hamilton is at 120%. Burlington has not met. They're only at uh, 27%. Uh, Brampton on track at 85%. Cambridge at 75%. Haven't met their uh, goal yet. Uh, Guelph, for example, on track at 98%. Hamilton at 120%. And we look at Kitchener exceeding at 139 percent uh is that what this is calling out those that uh, aren't playing yeah well essentially they're, they're gonna you know they're saying people you know cities that aren't uh you know doing what the premier wants in terms of you know getting that housing built uh -huh. they're just going to be have a penalty that they're there there is a law you know they have they have a policy 
all laid out. If you you know you meet their terms, you're going to get some money back to do other thing inside the city. So, uh, and and so you know that's I think I think that's fair, and I think it's uh, you know it uh, it work it it works well for the premier. I mean it, it you know they have you know usually a premier has two or three things they want to get done, and the the way to get it done is to really reward uh, people at various levels. Uh, with with money for their organizations if they uh, if they comply with what the you know the, the premier wants. Are you surprised at Hamilton coming in at one hundred and twenty percent? I yeah I guess I I am, but on the other hand, uh, you know we have uh, I I think uh, certainly the mayor as quietly she doesn't get uh, you know I think there's a lot of criticism of the mayor because she's not, no basically does things now quietly compared to mm-hmm. the previous uh, you know the job in the legislature where she was right. noisy anyways but she really is working hard and she has a good staff and they they are really working hard to try to get uh, you know uh, have the conditions so people who are wanting to build houses uh, will be able, will be able to do it and so yeah I, I i think i think it's we have a good quality you know bureaucrats and i think the mayor's doing a good job on this uh some have asked what constitutes a target what constitutes a housing start and some it's this and some it's that but you know again i i think i'm more concerned with just raising the bar we can figure out what that level is later on what are your thoughts well wait one thing there is a problem for at times, because somebody a builder may say, "I want, I want the you know, I want the uh, to get the permission to build a certain kind of house or or development on a certain piece of property that I own." And the city says, "Oh, looks great. Here we go. We'll give it to you." But then it lays vacant. You know, yeah. there are pieces around the province, and I can think of one not too far away from me. It yeah. was approved for for uh, for uh, uh, condos. And it's still not built. You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with the site. The problem is that sometimes a lot of these builders don't have the cash to really do yeah. the do the, you know do the building, but they have they have the right to do it if they can find the cash for you know somebody who's willing to invest with, on it in it. Does this change the perception or the optics of all of this? Because, you know, I've been, you know, I, I'm the first one to stand up and, and say build has been a bad word in Ontario for a long period of time. Have we learned our lesson? Are we moving forward on housing and, and the need to continue to keep up with this? Well, I, I think we, we are going to get the housing that really that people, younger people, say, you know, newly married people, younger people, smaller fa- with, with, with mm-hmm. small families, but don't want to buy, you know, uh, you know, uh, houses that are over a million dollars. They don't, they don't have that kind of cash. I mean, I, you know, I, I've noticed around when I see houses go for sale uh, in certainly in my area, the people who are buying houses that are over that money, they're not young. Sometimes they're even retired, but Hmm. you know, we need housing for young people, young families. And I think that's, uh, I think that's starting to happen in, in Hamilton. Henry Jasek with us, Professor Emeritus, Political Science, McMaster University, Housing and Pharmacare, all in one segment. Uh, Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Uh, yes, you as, you as well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Just before the show began, breaking news, a uh, new Democrat Party leader, Jagmeet Singh, announced that uh, the NDP and the Liberals have a Pharmacare deal. And we just so happen to have the leader of the federal NDP here now, Jagmeet Singh. Jagmeet, thanks so much for the time. I guess congratulations My are in order. My pleasure. Yeah, we're we're pretty uh, honored to be able to say this that we've been able to push forward pharmacare in uh, the most historic way in our country's history. We've seen liberals promise to do this for thirty years and break that promise for three decades. Justin Trudeau himself promised it in previous electoral campaigns and broke that promise. And now it's no coincidence that the first time we've seen movement on this is when we're in a minority government and New Democrats use our power to do this. So. Uh, not just the legislation have we secured for a single-payer universal pharmacare, so general legislation to set that up. We also were able to secure commitments for uh, contraceptives to be covered using a single-payer model and diabetes medication. So what that means is that you will be able to go into your pharmacy with your prescription and get your diabetes medication, get contraceptives, and it will be free. 
Uh, you said earlier, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the money doesn't have to be there, uh, be there right now, but the plan has to be in place. There's got to be some structure. Obviously, the devil's in the details. What is the deal? So the deal is uh, the legislation will be tabled before the on or before the March 1st deadline. So that's locked in. And then the additional, what we've secured, is also committed and in there, and we'll expect funding for that to be announced shortly. But this is, we're, we're moving ahead with actually concrete medication being covered. Like women will be able to go into a pharmacy with a prescription and get their birth control, uh, get their IUD. They will get emergency contraception if they need it. That will be included. So this is, this is very significant. And for millions of people, it's going to save them lots of money. And no, t- any timeline it yet uh, as when this might, could, when this might happen and when people will be receiving this? Yeah, this is uh, as soon as possible. It's going to take some negotiating with provinces, and there'll be some provinces that are going to be quicker to sign on than others, but we can get this done very quickly. And I look to the child care agreements as a, an example of, of how this could work. Those agreements were signed quite quickly, and we could be in a similar position where those get locked in uh, and as who, soon as possible. And who does this cover specifically? This will cover everyone. This is universal. This is a universal program. And it's going to cover anyone that needs it, uh, anyone, period, anyone that uh, for birth control and for diabetes. It's going to be universal, single payer, the way we envision the entire pharma care program to be. We've got that locked in for these two classes. And what about those with other plans? Does it affect that in any way? Well, the BC government has, has launched something similar for contraceptives. So we would look to that example of how they've worked through any of those scenarios. but. This will be a, a single-payer model, and everyone should be able to go in to a pharmacy and have their medication covered for it. So how that works out with people with already with coverage, we'll look to other jurisdictions to see how that's going to work out. Uh, many have said they're concerned more about fixing health care than moving on to pharmacare, uh, concerned about we're using the same failing template to administer pharmacare. Uh, are you concerned we'll be in the same place with pharmacare as we are with healthcare down the road? Well, I, I think that we need to do both. Like, I don't think it's a either or. It's very clear to me and clear to all the experts that if your universal healthcare system can't function, if the major, major outcome or the major directive of, of a universal healthcare system is you go to a doctor and they prescribe you medication and you can't even take that medication, I mean, that, that's very problematic. That's why every other country in the world that has universal health care has included medication coverage because it, it seems nonsensical that you would cover the visit to the doctor, but the doctor tells you take this medication to stay healthy and you can't afford it. What will happen? The person ends up getting more and more sick and ends up back in an emergency room. That seems to be a waste of a visit. They can't take what they were prescribed to take. So this makes sense to me, but we also need to make sure we're addressing the shortage of healthcare workers in our healthcare system. Largely what's going on, it's, it's really a starving of our healthcare funding. And then Folks are, are sounding alarm bells, saying, oh, it's not working. Well, it's not working because it's not being funded. You've got conservatives in provinces like, like Ontario that are cutting funding to healthcare and saying, well, it's not working. We're going to need the private uh, care to step in. Well, the private care costs you more and has to factor in profit and costs people more out of money, costs the healthcare system more, and then starves from the public system. And the public system, again, has more and more criticism that it's not working. So. That is a, let's, a very flawed approach. But let's be honest here, Jugmeet. This is something, you know, I, I could take the clip that you just said and play it five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, and, and we could say basically the same thing. When we went through the global pandemic and we saw the, the weak links in our, you know, coveted healthcare system, the, the mantra was the status quo is not working. The status quo is not working. Is that about changing the system or altering the system or coming up with a, a, a mixed solution? Or is it just adding more money to the system that we already have, which we're already having a hard time affording? Oh, it's, it's properly funding the healthcare system. We, we have it's been under so more so so it's more money just we have to just keep putting and I don't mean to be cynical here Jugby, but we just have to keep putting more money into the system we have that's what you're that's what you're telling well, us the, we, the, the problem go, right? the, the problem is we've been taking money out of this and now we got to keep putting more money into this system in order to make it work well, that well, is the solution that. let's 
let's reframe that. You uh, not you, but one of the the conservatives yeah, yeah. have starved, and the liberals have starved the healthcare system, and right. then are surprised that it's not working. Well, look, obviously, if you if you underfund something, it's not going to work. So, so again, really this bad. this has been complex. It gets this, underfunded, and it's been underfunded for years. Yeah, and the conservatives and, and liberals that have been in power have been cutting funding to it, and then all of a sudden they're surprised that it's not working. The so the well, so the answer you underfund it. So the answer is to put back that money that we have been taking out for decades, and that's going yes. to fix. That is going to fix the system. So in other words, the system is fine. It just doesn't. We're just not putting enough money into it, as opposed to the well, system's yeah, as opposed to the system's broken. And maybe there's a, no, a more no. efficient way of doing it. Not at all. The system's not broken. The system's been purposely broken by underfunding it. Like okay. you got a house, it's not. It's not. You're like, oh, my house is broken. Well, it's because. You didn't put in the you neglected properly. It. You didn't yeah. put in. You neglected it, and all of a sudden you're surprised that the house is not working. Well, it's not a surprise. It's been done very purposely. Cutting the funding is going to result in it not working. But specific things have to be done. Like there's a healthcare worker shortage, and that's something that's going to require a specific strategy around hiring and and adequately uh, compensating healthcare workers. That's a, that's a specific problem. We're seeing a lot of shortages where people leave one province, go to another in that province and leave to another. So we need to build up more healthcare workers. We need to have access to frontline healthcare workers like uh, nurses and, and doctors so that people can go and get that primary care instead of saying, well, I don't have a family doctor, so I got to go mm. to the emergency room. And then the emergency room waits are so long. So primary care is important. There's team approaches that already exist, but aren't being well-funded. But where you go into a, a clinic where you've mm-hmm. got a, a physician, a nurse, a dietitian, a social worker working in a group these have already been shown to work very effectively, but aren't properly funded, and there are enough of them. So those type of centers could be great. But the public model works. We know that the private model is far more costly, far more inefficient, and is not going to give the best outcomes. We look at the state's best example of the worst type of care possible. It costs so much, and they have the worst outcomes. It's, just a, it's, it's interesting, though. I got to let you go, Jigme, but it's interesting. There was a, a survey done recently that Americans are more confident in their health care system than Canadians are in there. But then I know where you're going to take that. Anyway, congratulations to you. It's uh, it's quite the uh, quite the accomplishment. We'll see what happens. Thank you, Jagmeet Singh. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A special committee, this is the Globe and Mail, a special committee of MPs tasked with evaluating censored records on the firing of two scientists from Canada's top infectious disease laboratory in Winnipeg. Researchers who worked for China, with China, say most of the important information redacted from Public Health Agency of Canada documents appear to have been withheld to shield the organization from embarrassment rather than to protect national security. To talk more about all of this and what it means, Phil Gersey with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. I can't think of a better way to start my weekend than talking to you. <laughs> we should get this all over by a Wednesday so we can like <laughs> cool out for the weekend. It just seems that it keeps popping up. We talked about this in the, the two that were fired from the Winnipeg lab way back when, and not really much has come about it. It seems, whether it's this or election interference, the government may be playing, hey, that's top secret, the top secret card in order just to really tell us what's going on. Is that accurate? Well, it is and it isn't. And this is a tricky game the government has to play. So, you know, after spending 32 years in intelligence with both CSIS and CSE, obviously I had access to very insensitive information. And that, and that cannot be made public because you can't disclose your sources or methods. But I do think, and, and Canadian governments and other Western governments have been accused of this, Scott, of overclassifying and minimizing what can be released to the public. Look, at the fact that you and I are even talking after my long career shows that a lot of things can be talked about in the op- in the open sphere. So, you know, was this done to uh, prevent embarrassment? I don't know that. But I think some of the uh, allegations that too much is being left classified is probably does have some justification. What would be too embarrassing? Um, what do we know about what happened? Well, that's the, that's the big question, right? I think the embarrassing, embarrassing thing would be was that, um, like in the Chinese interference, which you and I have talked about ad nauseum over the past couple of months, did the government actually know something and fail to act on it? Uh, meaning, did, you know, was intelligence provided? 
through this this very uh, sensitive health agency, maybe by CSIS or the RCMP or whatever. And they said, eh, you know what? We're not going to bother reading that stuff. It's only CSIS and you know spies and cops. Who cares about that? Um, where internal protocols not followed, where, you know, what about internal security? Did they do their due diligence? When you've got foreign scholars coming in, or even Canadians who have close ties to a, to an, uh, a not an ally like China, you got to make sure that you, you know, you, you cross your T's and dot your I's that they're reliable. So there's a whole bunch of things that could be very embarrassing of the government and the institution in this regard. Uh, the, the two Michaels, would they be a factor or would have been a factor in any of this? Really hard to say, you know, that, uh, our relations with China are in the toilet for a whole bunch of reasons. They're not getting any better anytime soon. There's yeah. just so many balls in the air when it comes to China, Scott, the public inquiry, the police stations, this, uh, you know, Chinese harassment of Canadian citizens. The list goes on and on and on and on. And I don't know where this trend is going to end. And, and and hopefully we're going to get better as a nation. And by that, I mean governments and listening to our intelligence services as to when countries like China are spying on us or harassing our citizens. But I'm, I don't have the confidence that they're going to do that, unfortunately. Do we know what they were working on in this lab in Winnipeg? I do not. And I'm guessing that because my understanding, Scott, is that this particular facility is, you know, this is like the top, top, top medical facility yeah. where you've, you're dealing with diseases and viruses that if they were to get out would be a really, really bad a news day for Winnipeg and Manitoba, let alone Canada. So yeah. I'm not a medical specialist by any stretch of the imagination, but my understanding is that you know, it's the real dangerous stuff that takes place there. It seems almost, and you've talked about, you know, what needs to be done to open up the lines of communication and get the information where it needs to be and such, but it almost seems to be that there, when these reports are put forward, there should be a top secret version of it and a non-classified version of it. So in other words, uh, the report and then a press release on it so to at least give people something, uh, you know, to at least give them some sort of uh, uh, security, some sort of, uh, you know, comfort in knowing that they at least have some information, or is that just out of the question? No, no, I 100%. And I worked on files where we had the so-called red binders, which were highly classified, and the green binders were not. Look, Scott, the bot at the end of the day, when you work in intelligence, there's two things that matter to you, your sources and your methods. So who's giving you the information and what's the methodology you're doing to collect and analyze it in case there's some cryptanalysis or whatever kind of things involved that are very sensitive in nature. Aside from that, you can actually say quite a bit in the public domain as long as you're not jeopardizing ongoing investigations or or compromising sources or methods. I think it's just laziness. And maybe there are there is some truth to the allegations that this is highly embarrassing. And for a government that's been taking on the chin for an awful long time now with respect to China, Maybe they just decided, you know, enough's enough, and we just can't afford to look as stupid as we have been over the past couple of years. Is this something you can change? Can a change in government uh, uh, shed any light on this and, and, and correct the, the lack of communication or whatever it is between CSIS and the government? I wish I had an easy answer for you. Um, under the Harper government, which, of course, was a different political party, uh, they were a little better at intelligence, if memory serves me correct, but they didn't they didn't deal with the Chinese interference issue back then very well either. Yeah. You look at it, it's time for changing government, notwithstanding, right? This government is well past its shelf life, and you and I have talked about that. The problem is, Scott, you've got intelligence professionals who know what they're doing, and you've got elected officials who don't when it comes to yeah. intelligence and national security, and that's where the two trains don't meet. So you gotta you got to try to train these people, educate them as to why this information is important, why they have to take the time to look at their inboxes, Mr. Blair, for example, uh, and why it becomes a, a, an important part of policy and decision-making, but that takes time. Bill Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, just given a kickstart to your Friday. Uh, Phil, as <laughs> always, thanks for the time. One day we'll do this over a beer. And uh, have yourself a great weekend. If you're buying Scott, I'm there. You too, Scott. <laughs> We've certainly heard from a lot of you in and around the area of the GFL landfill uh, in Stony Creek, and mostly when it starts to stink, and uh, they just the the citizens just do not seem to be getting anywhere. Uh, so let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glambrook, and with us now, Donna. Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Scott. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about so many other things than a smell, but here we go, and here we are. Why? I, I why? Why? Were those the real words of that song? 
No. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. But I think it was different. I think they were referring to something different than what we're referring to. <laughs> but I digress. Uh, and maybe that's the only way to get over this. Just get it. Well, never mind. All right. So obviously, we've been getting a lot of complaints about this. Yep. A lot of people pretty upset. And whenever we try to get anybody from GFL, there's no comment. Or you get a press release saying, well, we went out. We sniffed. We couldn't smell anything. And even listeners are joking and sending me notes saying, what, he who smelt it dealt it? I mean, why is this company not answering for this? Well, I don't know. You'll have to ask the company to answer for it. And I'm certainly not going to be an apologist for GFL. But I can tell you that um, my, obviously, my, my hope is that this odor does not re- reoccur this spring, this summer. What the residents went through last year was unacceptable. I mean, we, we suffered through COVID. Kids were unable to go to school. You know, they, weren't, they weren't able to really socialize and attend sporting events. And then they're stuck with living in an area, in a community where there was this incredibly pungent odor coming from the landfill site. Having said that, a lot has happened since last year. And I'm really, in fact, I met with the um, regional representative from GFL yesterday to talk specifically about this. And I asked them to, you know, can you commit? And they said, yes, we can commit that those odors will not come back this spring, this summer. They have committed that the leachate levels will continue to go down, and they have committed to uh, bring the, the the size of the stockpiles down as well. So, um, you know, a lot has happened since last summer. There have been uh, some intermittent issues with odor. I don't think it's realistic to believe that there will never be an odor emitted from a landfill site. I just don't think that's realistic. It That's something that will happen but nothing to the degree that we experienced in the community experience last year. Uh, I'm still getting complaints, though, that it's, it's even happening over the winter because they were said weather was an issue, whatever, maybe the, the temperature was a factor, but they were, they were still getting it in the winter. Well, I'm not sure it was. I mean, I've been up there a number of occasions, to be very honest with you, and I haven't detected it. It's not consistent. It's not like it was last year. If they have been driving by at a certain time and may have smelled something, perhaps, um, I have not, and I've had staff go up, you know, every day or every other day in the last few weeks because there had been more complaints on the way, on the uh, Facebook page and into my office as well. Uh, we did, one of my staff members did smell something this morning, but that's not even a guarantee it came from GFL. And I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that a lot has happened since last year. And they are under investigation. I, I want to, I know that that residents are very frustrated. Why haven't they been fined? Well, I want people to understand, and and perhaps you should understand, that they are under investigation and there is a branch. I can't find someone. The local office doesn't have that authority, and the minister cannot have that authority. But we have an environmental investigation and enforcement branch. This is an arm's length branch from the uh, ministry. They assess compliance. They undertake investigative and enforcement. They, these officers are appointed by the minister, and they, they hold significant investigative legal powers. They have been investigating uh, GFL since last year. They can investigate um, and monitor compliance within these these uh, environmental laws, the Environmental Protection Act, the Ontario Water Resources Act, the Pesticides Act, the Environmental Assessment Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, Nutrient Management Act. GFL is currently being investigated for violating the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Act. It is the most serious environmental law to break. It comes with the strongest penalties. It takes forever. It takes forever to be penalized for them to complete their investigation. But I suspect that they will be. Uh, how concerned are you? I mean, obviously, there's the push to get housing built and so on and so forth. And I understand Hamilton's hit its target. And uh, but but anyway, there's so much uh, effort to get that done. And then we have this sort of thing there. Should it be moved? Should it stay there? How does that change development? Because we understand even a school that was supposed to be constructed there, they decided, nah, not a good location. So what does that do for the development have- of the area? I don't know if that ha- they have decided that. Uh, I'm not sure that they should have allowed the development to go as close as it was. But, but GFL it was called um, Taro East Landfill, and it was it was um, opened back in 1996, and then it was uh, it became Terrapure. I'm not sure what year it Terrapure sold to GFL in 2021, and 
Terrapure never, ever indicated that they were going to close the site, but they did apply for a license to expand the site. In order to close the site, you actually have to notify the ministry and uh, provide a plan to, um, to stop accepting landfill and what you're going to do in terms of shutting it down, because it all has to be encased. Yeah. That was never applied for. What they did apply for was an expansion uh, of the facility. And, and I was wondering, how were these homes built? Because when I visited the residents, they said they were told that this was going to be a golf course, but nobody had any evidence of it. What we do have evidence of is that all of, or at least uh, what I have seen, is that there was uh, an agreement in the purchase agreement that indicated, or a, a clause in the purchase agreement that indicated that they were buying a home next to a landfill site. So there's, you know, it, it's difficult when you... Um, have massive expansion and you want to build roads, this is all industrial waste, remember. It's not household waste. It's not hazardous waste. It's, yeah. it's stuff that's concrete. It's steel. It's that type of thing. If we want, uh, you know, steel and, and, and asphalt and, and we want to build highways and homes and hospitals, we're going to have a byproduct. We're going to have a waste. We have to put it somewhere. And that's what this particular landfill was, was accepting and is accepting. So is it going to, um, you know, you can't move it. It's not going to be moved. Why, why, but though, like concrete doesn't stink, Donna. Uh, sand doesn't stink. Gravel, steel doesn't no. stink. No, but the water, when if you have just, I mean, I just emptied out some, yeah. some tulips yeah. that I handed. When the water Makes sense. And cools and sits for any length of time, it smells. And that's what yeah. it is. It's this leachate. It's the water that accumulated at the bottom. They weren't able to pump it out. And something happened, and they still haven't told me or have been able to identify why they weren't able to continue. Because the leachate exists, it, it continues to occur, to be created through this process as long as landfill is being accepted, uh, as fill is being accepted on the site. But it had been pumped out, and it's treated, and then it's, it's dealt with at the city level. It goes through the wastewater and water system through the city. But something happened, and it accumulated, and that's what caused the odor. Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glambrook. Thank you, Donna. Hopefully next time we chat, it will be something that smells a little nicer. Yeah, let's hope this doesn't happen. I really, really am keeping my fingers crossed. I've been promised it won't. Let's just keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. And thanks for getting back to us. We appreciate that. Uh, Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glambrook. Have a great weekend, Donna. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It seems the Premier and the Prime Minister get along reasonably well. They certainly uh, jive when they're making big announcements together. But uh, on 640 Toronto, our sister station, John Oakley, had a conversation with the Premier in which he, um, he, he said, who's running the country, Justin Trudeau or Gibault, the Environment Minister? Of course, uh, the Environment Minister, uh, he called him an extreme, uh, an extreme environmentalist and an extremist environmentalist and no longer uh, the comment no longer investing in new roads uh, infrastructure was what started all of this leaving the premiers wondering well what can we do what can't we do to talk more about all of this and of course pharmacare tasha Carradine with us author and public affairs consultant here now tasha thanks for the time hope you're well uh, I'm well. Thanks. Probably better than uh, Doug Ford's feeling right now. <laughs> well, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, so would you think this is going to come back to haunt him? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he knows something about Trudeau that we don't know, but he's not running again. Who knows? Um, I think <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, look, Doug Ford uh, is, at the end of the day, the Premier of Ontario. He's not going to agree with Trudeau on everything. And sure, uh, there's been a lot of agreement. Also, because uh, there's been issues on which they do see the importance of things, such as housing, for example, and they see eye to eye on that. But when it comes to building roads, when, you know, Gilbo, Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister, goes out on the, the limb that he went out on, um, I think that it's, it's just natural. I mean, look, I think, if anything, uh, it's a sign to, to Trudeau to rein in his environment minister, and Ford's not the only one who's got that opinion. Uh, mixed messaging here. Uh, Environment Minister says one thing. The Prime Minister follows it up, said, no, there's no change in policy. Are you surprised that uh, th- there's this communication, I don't you know, call it a nightmare, uh, especially after they've just brought in a new comms guru prior to Christmas? Well, Stephen Gilbeau, if you remember his past, he was uh, with the Ecuteric group in Quebec. He scaled the CN Tower and got arrested. Yeah. 
to make yeah. a point. I mean, this is a guy who he's a loose cannon. He's a maverick. He does what he thinks is is right. And mm-hmm. in this case, I think he went beyond government policy. Certainly, the government's not going to stop building roads. Um, you know, when you build housing, the irony here, of course, you need roads if you build more housing. There, you, there you go, right there. And and you know, yeah. I remember very, very, very vividly uh, about twenty years, uh, Premier Dalton McGuinty saying, "I'm not interested in building any more roads or houses, I guess, as well." And we all know where we ended up here. So it just yeah. seems odd for the environment minister to say basically the same thing when we're in a crisis due to shortages. Yeah, but I think, again, he comes from a different perspective, and he comes also from Quebec, where the environment movement is very vocal and strong. It's easy, of course, for Quebec to be environmentally friendly because they have so much natural hydroelectricity. They are the most electrified province in the country, probably. So, you know, um, he, he, I think there's there's a disconnect, perhaps, with how the rest of the country feels about these issues. So does this go away or do you, uh, what happens? I mean, I guess it's covered up the renaming of the carbon tax, but what, what, where do you go with this? Is it just, oh, chalk it up to another one and move on? Well, like I said, I think it's a shot across the bow from Ford saying, you know, uh, this guy's a little out to lunch. Who's, run, who's running the country is a sort of a, uh, a cheeky way of saying he's got too much power. So it's either that he doesn't think, you know, Trudeau's not running against, so it doesn't matter what he says, but I think it's large. I think it's more that he says, you know, that you have to, you have to rein this person in. Um, we have to work together. And if you have loose cannons like this, maybe that makes it a little harder. All right. A little earlier on, we were talking to Jugmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. He's in a pretty good mood today uh, because okay. of PharmaCare. We haven't really heard much on the, from the liberals on this. And when I pinned him for details, there's not really a lot out there as far as timelines and when it's going to happen or how it's going to work. But what are your thoughts on this? Uh, why now? Well, uh, because there's a deadline they imposed of March 1st, right? Yeah. The, the NDP had moved this school post from before Christmas, for the end of the year, rather, and so they, you know, they didn't get a deal now. The threat was we will take the government down. Budget time is coming. The government knows that's a confidence vote. So the NDP is really in the catbird seat here. The liberals, the liberals clearly do not want an election. That is very clear. The fact they struck a deal, they don't want an election. So Jagmeet Singh can say he scored a win, though it's not clear, like you said, exactly how far this deal will go. They're going to um, map it out by the end of the year. And at that point, I think, you know, we'll be looking at an election, we'll be in an election cycle because 2025, we have to have an election. So I think the liberals are going to frame it in such a way to steal his thunder. I think that, you know, if they, if they frame it in such a way that, that looks positive for their voters, Jagmeet Singh is not going to get the bounce from this unless, unless, of course, the liberals are so far down in the polls like they are now that people say, well, you know, anything's better than, than Justin Trudeau. So uh, that sort of answered my next question, Tasha. Who gets credit for this? Um, because right now, today, it's Jagmeet Singh. But again, the, the you know the comms department hasn't ha- hasn't had uh, work on it yet. So moving forward, do you think that the, at the end it will be the Liberals in Canadians' eyes who get credit for this, or is just well, is Jagmeet Singh the leader of the new uh, the new leader of the opposition? <laughs> Jagmeet Singh is never going to have more power than he has now. Because the next election, all indications point to a conservative majority, at which point, even if he gets more seats than he has now, he's going to have nothing to say. It's only in a minority situation that the NDP can flex its muscle and only in a minority where the government will will listen to them. So a liberal minority, honestly. Uh, So he is, I think, milking this situation for all it's worth because he knows it's not going to get any better. Um, clearly he doesn't want an election, and I didn't think he did for a number of reasons, um, both for funding, uh, for the polls, and also personally, his pension doesn't invest until next year. And there are some other MPs as well, NDP MPs mm. in that position. So I think, you know, this is, Jagmeet Singh's the winner on a number of fronts today. I'm not sure if he will be when the election rolls around. How do, how do the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev position this moving forward? Uh, if they go on to form the next government, do they keep it going? Do they drop it? What do they do? Will it even be anything beyond a name at that point? Well, the provinces have to buy in. See, this is the thing, too, with pharmacare. It's not that you can just impose it um, because the provinces have jurisdiction over health care. And many of them have different plans of different kinds. Quebec has the furthest developed pharmacare program in the country. They're, they have not been on board with the idea of a national pharmacare program. And when you look at even the, the, the things they're talking about now, they're looking at generics, right? They're talking about 
uh, covering generics for diabetes. They're not going to cover Ozempic, for example. I think when people get a look at this and what PharmaCare actually means, they may not love it because only 17% of Canadians have said they have forsworn a prescription for cost reasons. Those are the uninsured, by the way, who are a minority in the country right now. So it's a very small slice of people that could have been helped by other means, by targeted support, as opposed to saying to everyone, hey, guess what? You're not going to have a health plan anymore. It's now covered by the government. So your, your yeah. company doesn't have to, yeah. but you're not going to access the same drug and you're not going to get the same quality. And that is, I think, going to cause some pushback, especially among elderly patients who say, wait, you're going to take away my favorite medication and give me something else now? I don't think so. Tasha Kierden with us, author and public affairs consultant, talking about everything political. Tasha, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Bye-bye. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley with us. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. I don't know what happened to the music, uh, but Men Without Hats, that's not too bad compared to what we've been used to hearing over the last little bit. Uh, Radley is with us now. Uh, how are you, Scott? Are you ready to go with your big show? I am ready to go. Pete Diakowski is going to be in for a couple hours talking about all kinds of stuff, including... Well, that's a big show. Including this... Uh, I know you were just talking about it with your last guest, this Pharmacare thing that I... I I'm mm-hmm. just stunned by the idiocy of this and not the idea of getting people drugs. That's not the idiocy I, of it. I hear you. The idiocy is that Jugmeet Singh, if you have followed Twitter or other social media or other interviews or whatever for months now, months and months, the one horse that he has been beating repeatedly is how the rich grocers are gouging people, how we're only making the grocers richer, the big companies. All right. We're now not talking about grocery stores with PharmaCare, but all the companies that provide uh, coverage to their workers and the insurance companies Mm -hmm. are now not going to have to do that. And they're all going to become richer by this because of the, what is it? 81, 82, 85% of people who have coverage there. Now those companies are off the hook. And taxpayers are on the hook for this. And it, to me, it is, it makes no sense, Scott. It makes no sense that you have a program that the vast majority of Canadians are covered. And instead of plugging a small gap, you yep. undo the whole thing and say, no, we'd prefer to pay yeah. for everything. It, that and is, use that a te- is and use a template And use a template similar to healthcare because that is working so well. It is idiotic to the highest order. And I pulled up just this afternoon when I heard about this, because I went back, because I know they're saying this is going to cost $11 billion. Well, 11 billion is the cost. I think the startup cost based on the, what they're offering now, but in 2017, this is from global news, 2017, the parliamentary budget officer estimated a pharmacare plan in today's dollars is going to be $27 billion a year. That's that, and, and I, I fully expect that because everything in government is way bigger, probably double that. This'll be a $50 billion a year thing that we did not need to do. We could have done this for a fraction of the amount, but but if we did that, he doesn't have anything really to brag about to try and stay elected next time and to get his pension. Cause I don't believe that Jagmeet Singh has fulfilled his time in the house of commons yet to get his pension. I got to do everything I can to get reelected, to get my pension. Uh, it's funny because exactly what you're saying, uh, we're talking about an extremely small percentage of the population. And if you ask the Ontario Dental Association, the Ontario uh, Hospital Association, they don't need another federal government plan. They Each province has their own plan to solve this problem. The issue is they don't have the funding. So instead of starting another grandioso government program with our bazillion uh, civil servants that doesn't do the job, why don't we just give the province is the money that they've been asking for to solve the problem with that last remaining portion of the population oh, that yeah. isn't covered. And and Scott, look, this seems of all times to be the worst time to try and convince Canadians that we can do this efficiently in the wake of what we're hearing about arrive camps, whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like that's like why they're totally, they're totally qualified to implement a pharma care plan. Everybody in government is, do you not have the utmost confidence, Scott, in our government to 
develop a PharmaCare plan? That's why I'm saying double whatever the highest estimate is, double it, and we might be close to this. Now, my other question is provinces are require are, are on the hook for healthcare. Does this just get dumped on them so the federal government is going to give them That's exactly what's going to happen. So they'll give them a little bit, but what's going to happen is now all the provinces are going to say like with the $10 daycare, they you're not pay for it. you're not giving us enough to cover this, so you've just yep. downloaded this idea onto us. Yep. That's exactly – so he, here's what we're going to talk about in the show next when we get to this, when Pete is here, because it's one of the things that I really I'm, – I'm just – I'm stunned by. We, we know, barring something bizarre happening, we know that Pierre Polyev is going to become the next prime minister and probably the way things are going, a majority prime minister – what it looks like is happening here is Jugmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau at this point are just ramming as many things through as possible to handcuff yeah. Yeah. the next government. So they are going to have to become wildly unpopular because they're going to have to start yeah. undoing things yes. and taking things away. And one thing, one thing we know is that people don't like when you take stuff away, even though we can't afford, if we're adding with the money that we're already in deficits and debts, with our federal deficit and debt, if we throw another $50 billion a year on, we cannot, Scott, we, you may like the idea, we can't afford it. We can't afford it. And especially well, if there's this more efficient with a way more efficient solution. Yeah. There's more efficient ways of doing it than this. You can you can solve this problem without creating another giant bloated government program. But you know, again, which is inevitably what it's going to be. In, it's inevitable. I, I would bet all yeah. the money I have that if this thing survives and is still here in ten years, we're going to be having royal government inquiries into why this is now costing a hundred billion dollars a year when it was supposed to be eleven. I, I, I would I would bet you money that we'll be doing that because this is inevitably going to become a giant. Boondoggle. And the conversation has just started. It continues after the six o'clock news with Scott Radley. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one via voicemail from Betty. Hi, this is Betty Van Ness. I live in Upper Stony Creek, uh, borderline Grimsby. My daughter lives over in Stony Creek across from the landfill that you're talking about this afternoon. And I have been living up here for over 30 years and have watched the first landfill covered up. And now this one, it is not just what you were talking about, what Donna Skelly was saying. It is not just metal and stuff like that from factories. I have seen refrigerators up on top of this massive mound of earth that they have now that is so huge. I have seen bags of garbage. It is not what they're saying it is. I have viewed it for myself. I go over to her house probably every three days. It reeks, and I can smell it from my place, and I live Ridge Road and McNeely. All right, there you go. Uh, it stinks. As always, keep right except to pass. 